This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Mud Gear. Mud Gear serves the unleashed. They've created a brand of tough, strong, functional performance gear. This stuff is built to endure and push you along the way because Mud Gear, like you, is made tougher. From their custom-created Mud Gear race jersey to their trail socks, it's all built for the outdoor athlete. And this isn't just for the fellas. Ladies, they've got tons for you, too, like their Flex Fit Capris and Performance Race Back Tanks, those race shirts. They're all built in the USA, so you got to love that. Get sweaty, get dirty. It's all good. Whether it's for a road race or an obstacle adventure, Mud Gear can help you gear up for extreme performance. Now, we've got an exclusive for all. Pick up the six listeners. Go to mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6. That's P-U-T and the number six. Mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6 to save 15%. That's 15% off your order, just like that. But it's only for Pick Up the Six listeners, mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6. That's the number six, mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6. And let's get after it. Jason Anderson remembers the day he had to have this talk with his wife. His military career was winding down, and he didn't really know what to do next. They needed a plan for transition. Now he's working to equip the next generation of veterans to plan ahead through pre-veteran. Let's meet Jason and hear about his venture, as well as his career in the Air Force, flying around in the big, bad C-130 Hercules. Wheels up for Pick Up the Six podcast. Jason Anderson, welcome to Pick Up the Six podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> I am pumped for this one, man. I, uh, you've got an incredibly unique bio. You've done some really cool things throughout your military career, your post-military career. And we're talking about that sweet spot in the middle of military career, post-military career, and this transitioning, right, for veterans and, and what that world looks like and what that life looks like. And my friend, you, you've lived it. We're going to get into to all that. But first and foremost, man, just grateful for your service and grateful for you joining me today. I'm, I'm excited about it. Uh, thank you very much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to it. You are dialing in from one of the least attractive places uh, in the United States of America with terrible views and and all those those terrible things. So tell us where you're where we're talking to you from. Coming to you live from Jackson Hole. So uh, you know it's nestled up here in Northwest Wyoming. We are the, the the Southern Gate to Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone National Park. So boy, it is pretty. Very blessed to be here. Let me tell you, Brian. Jason, where are you from? Is is that your your uh, your neck of the woods by birth and growing up? What's your what's your where where's Jason Anderson from? Jason Anderson's from Annapolis, Maryland, but the story is my father, his grandfather came out here in the sixties, late sixties to do some hunting. And then he came back with some uh, elk meat, I think. And then uh, he told my mother, he's like, we are moving to Jackson hole. <laughs> so this was way before Jackson hole was, you know, what it is now, the big uh, tourist attraction. It was a pretty quiet town back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, we moved here in 74. So I did, basically grow up here from age two and then um, ended up coming back after my retirement in 2014, after a, a large gap after high school. Did you know, I mean, I get the sense that you had a feeling like we, we got to end up back out there. <laughs> so that's, that's part of the fun transition story. There is uh, you know, every single person is kind of programmed uh, to go to usajobs.gov. I <laughs> fell right. into that trap as well. You know, you're like, Hey, hey I need a job. Let's go find a federal job. 
So went there and uh, found, uh, no joke, I mean, I could not make this stuff up, but uh, I found a lumberjack job up in uh, Grand Teton National Park. Okay. And I was like, ooh, that sounds cool, but yeah, not quite my skill set. So that's when uh, we, we came up with some like I need a lot more, ideas. I need more flannel shirts for this to be a- <laughs> Honey, what's our flannel shirt budget? <laughs> no offense if there are any lumberjacks listening. I'm not meaning to. <laughs> so true. But I mean, that's just one of the many funny right. stories you kind of come up with during these things, you know. Right. So you were commissioned in the United States Air Force in 1995. Uh, you end up flying C-130s. Lead me up to how you end up commissioning the Air Force in 1995. What was your journey there? Yeah, journey there was uh, kind of interesting. Um, I you know, went to the Air Force Academy, but uh, I did not have the stellar SAT, ACT grade. So I went to prep school there on the grounds. Did that for a year. It was a fantastic kind of transition like into the academy because that could be pretty abrupt for your kind of normal high schooler. So yeah, went to the academy um, while I was there, studied civil engineering, um, also was a track athlete. So I was a, a hammer thrower. I was a uh, discus shot put guy in high school and then uh, the transition to the hammer throw in college because nice. I just thought it was cool. <laughs> it is. It's amazing, right? Like you're going to give me this thing on the end of a chain and I'm going to just launch it. Like, yep. Sign me up. <laughs> it, it was awesome. I mean, it was just, it, it's such a powerful uh, mm-hmm. movement within the circle. I, I just loved it. So, yeah, you know, yeah, it was great awesome. times back then. Did your family have a, uh, a service background? You know, was that kind of instilled in you at an early age? Take, take me into that a little bit. Yeah, that's a great question. So growing up, not growing up, but being born in Annapolis, uh, my father had been there and my mother for 40 years. So the Naval Academy is there. So mm-hmm. he was not a Naval Academy person, but he <clears throat> coincidentally went to the Naval Academy prep school, found out it wasn't for him, and then became a Marine. So, you know, he did, I think, four or five years in the Marine Corps. And then, of course, I did 20. So I constantly reminded him of, uh, you know, I quadrupled his time in service. But, of course, he was still a Marine. So, you know, he would, he would always try to get the upper hand in the conversations. <laughs> upper hand in the conversations and maybe upper hand in the physical altercation. If it, <laughs> if it had yeah, to go it, down that road. Oh, man, had some great conversations on that. I'm like, do you know I quadrupled your time in service, right? Oh, yeah, yeah I know, but yeah, I still got you, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'll still kick your ass if I have to. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. yep. You always got to fear dad, right? I mean, that's just part of the... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I understand that. C-130s, man. I mean, this is the Hercules, right? This is a big Herc. bird, and, and uh, this airplane is designed to uh to really be part of tactical mm-hmm. missions to essentially drop troops off drop equipment off into hostile areas so early in your career uh you go through uh pilot qualifying you get called on the c-130 uh a few years into your air force career so what was that journey like and what was that plane like for you oh man it was great so so kind of interesting after i graduated from the academy uh i ended up going to Navy flight school. So there's a joint kind of, you know, fulfilling the Goldwater Nichols Act 86. Mm -hmm. We take 10% of the Air Force folks, put them in Navy flight school, vice versa, 10% of the Navy and the Air Force school to kind of get to know one another. So I went through Navy flight school, which is nice. So it was Whiting Field, Florida, where I flew the T-34 Turbo Mentor and then went to Corpus Christi for the T-44. And uh, what's what's kind of cool about that is, uh, you know, every aircraft has its own personality. So I, I was not, my personality was not the fighter guy. Yeah. That, that, that was just, those guys are awesome don't, and girls are awesome, don't get me wrong. But 
it's uh, the, the airlift world is way more laid back. And I kind of really enjoyed that. So like you said, after I did my initial qual at Little Rock Air Force Base, um, I, I did well enough in pilot training to get my first choice. So my first choice was Ramstein. And um, as we kind of briefly talked about before the show, that's uh, 1998 when the Sarajevo stuff was kicking up and the Bosnia thing was about ready to kick off. So sure enough, I get there and we're in our first conflict within maybe in there four months or so. So, you know, we're flying down to Bosnia, we're flying uh, in a couple of years after that to Kosovo. So the mission was fantastic because um, the C-130, like you were mentioning, is, uh, you know, it does all kinds of austere missions, goes to unprepared non-asphalt runways, uh, flying around in the weather, dropping out troops. But the unit there is called an AWADS group and it's for adverse weather. So there were a lot of times with the clouds in Europe where <clears throat> we're doing like a 14 ship formation and you take off, you go into a cloud, you fly around for five hours, drop people off, and then you descend, come out of the cloud and finally land a 14 ship. It's just unbelievable kind of, uh, you know, kind of accurate flying. It was, it was really quite fun early on in my career for sure. Yeah, man. I can only imagine I was doing some quick math. Uh, when my dad was at the Pentagon at the time we were in Northern Virginia and, uh, he was at J three during a lot of Bosnia during a lot of the Kosovo stuff. I, I remember vividly, uh, many a night during those conflicts, uh, where he would be at the Pentagon all night. Right. And, and wouldn't, wouldn't return home. Cause they were just cranking on what you guys doing. I was trying to figure out what, what kind of overlap, if any, there might've been between, uh, you two men, uh, during those, uh, times. And, and, you know, th that's an effort that I think a lot of people probably don't know much about, you know, it's in this time frame of post desert storm pre nine 11, Right. And, and obviously GWAT global war on terror is just such a focus of what we've been a part of since that 2001 kind of time frame. Do you mind taking me back into that, that sort of wartime effort, Bosnia, Kosovo, what all that was like and, and what you guys were doing? Yeah. So the first thing when you, when you kind of start talking about that, what I was remembering is some of the, 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 uh, I guess, education I had gone through after I left the air force Academy, I got my master's degree in that first year after that. And it was in inner, well, part of it was international relations. And one of the papers I remember reading was Francis Fukuyama, which was, uh, I think if I remember right, it was the end of times or something like that. I can't remember the specific title, but the, the, tent, the intent was the cold war is done. Right. So, right. you know, now that Russia has fallen, um, and now uh, that it's kind of an open world, it's now going to be a peaceful time. You know, there's going to be no conflict. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be kumbaya. And then, of course, you know, a couple of years after that, you start seeing these different kind of hotspots. So we've gone from a, you know, a huge hegemon kind of, you know, 1v1 out there uh, to a more just hotspots all over the place. And that was my biggest takeaway. So honestly, before going to Germany, I have very, very little knowledge of kind of the historical significance behind that. Yugoslavia, all the historical things uh, with uh, going, going way back in time. So it was kind of interesting to see that kind of pop up, you know, from a, a flying standpoint, uh, you know, I was getting my feet under me as a co-pilot uh, with the C-130. And, and there's a lot of really interesting missions up there flying some very interesting people around uh, with long hair and long rifles and 
satellite gear back in those days into Sarajevo. So there's a lot of those stories I still have in my mind. But of course, my biggest focus was just trying to do my job and figure <laughs> figure yeah. out how to work with the crew, make sure make sure uh, you know I'm putting the landing gear up and down, making sure I'm taking care of the pilot, you know, making sure uh, you know. Uh, some of the more interesting things are, you know, over there, uh, you know, some of the governments we worked with um, as a co-pilot, I'd have to carry around like $40,000 in cash, you know, because th th that's what we did is we went to a few airfields and I was the guy that got to carry a satchel of cash to go pay for our gas. And what? I mean, just crazy yeah, stories yeah, like yeah. this are in my mind, you know, and probably some <clears throat> hardened characters jumping out of the back of those things. Right. Like I can only imagine who some of those dudes are back there. Definitely. And I was just telling, actually, uh, we had a friend stay for the weekend and I was telling him about a story where I did have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. I mean, that's, that, that's how uh, interesting it was, but the, the, the kind of minor details that I can tell you about is uh, we went to a location um, close to Ramstein and uh, I was met in the back of the aircraft because I was back there with the loadmaster by a one-star general who handed me a manifest written down uh, by hand, and it was a conix. So uh, a forklift brought over a conix. The conix was put into the aircraft. The rampant door in the back shut, and then a, a bunch of people popped out of the, the hatch that looked a lot different than the people I had normally been, uh, you know, not necessarily uniformed, not mm -hmm. necessarily particularly shaven. Mm -hmm. So it was just interesting. Um, some of those missions that we, that we did. So I know it was really significant kind of work. Uh, it was, uh, just kind of fascinating to be part of that, you know, kind of geopolitical event that was taking place at the time. You know, it's, uh, it's wild to think about, you know, the level of detail that are involved in these sorts of efforts. I was just over the weekend, uh, doing some driving back and forth across the state for some events. I was catching up on a few, uh, Jocko Willink podcast. And I was back in episodes, it was like two or three or two or four. And he had Dick Thompson on, who was a SOG guy from Vietnam. And and he's talking about just these, I mean, dude, these episodes are wild. The stories, this guy almost died 15 times. Like it's nuts, the stuff they're doing, but they're doing a lot of it pretty much outside the wire, right? Because they're the most classified of classified. Yeah. But there are guys like you, right? And there are gunships that are aiding in their effort and they still don't even know exactly all the details of what those guys are trying to do. It's, it's just wild. Some of the stories are. are oh yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure with Jocko, I mean, th that's going to be some pretty high level stuff <laughs> during those conflicts though. You know, I mean, the, the aircraft is so unique because uh, you know, it can accept pretty much any type of gasoline. It's very self-sufficient. It doesn't need a power cart. So it's not like the thing you think of when you're at an airport and got everything plugged up to it. It can go anywhere. And, and if it can burn, um, you know, it can turn the engines. And that's just what made it cool. So the fact that, you know, I was in my uh, mid twenties and then, you know, the, the, the whole crew was under 30 for sure. Right. And, and we were kind of out going to North that's Africa, middle Africa, all over uh, Europe. I mean, it was just the level of responsibility was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, you come walking in with a little bit of an extra swagger when you're flying around <laughs> in a big beast like that. I mean, it's called Hercules for crying out loud. Like, what's not to like? There you go. That's right. Dude, your career takes an interesting turn in the Air Force, and it ends up being very international focused with a ton of work in Japan. So how does all that play out? 
Man, there's so many stories wrapped up in there. So, so I'll, I'll kind of go briefly a little sure. bit at the time. So left Germany in 2001, uh, actually August, 2001. So, you know, what's coming up here. Yeah, no kidding. I'm back actually in Jackson hole here, staying with my, my family and my brother wakes me up. He goes, you're not going to see, you're not going to believe what happened. Of course, and it's it's September 11th. Yep. Watching it. And I was like, Ooh, that's Osama bin Laden. I knew it right there. Cause I just done a, a huge research paper on him. And I mean, I was just like, I, I just had a sense it was that and I'm like, Hey, Hey, I guess I'll be in the middle East for the next several years. So sure enough, you know, I was in Jackson interim to little rock air force base. So for the listeners that don't know that that's kind of like the, the epicenter of the Hercules world, mm-hmm. there's 120 airplanes sitting on the ramp there at any one time. It was just a huge base. So uh, get there and first, you know, next thing, you know, uh, I got there in September uh, and then I was in Afghanistan in February of 02. So when you kind of go back to, um, you know, the really uh, the people who were there early, it's all three letter organizations. Um, you know, you kind of see the same people, you know, kind of running, running point at Bagram, mm-hmm. Kandahar mm-hmm. or elsewhere within uh, Afghanistan. So. The, the kind of funny part is, you know, of course, I'm over there for the next several months. I mean, we're doing interesting things like, you know, we were not special operations C-130s, but, you know, everyone began taking off and landing with night vision goggles, which was being pioneered by the special forces years ago. Yeah. But now everyone's yeah. doing it. Yeah. So I had to be part of an initial cadre to kind of teach our squadron how to do that. It was so I, I, like I said, there's so many stories kind of wrapped up in there. Um, but, you know, after spending two years there. Uh, I had met my fiance. I met my future wife at the time. And, uh, you know, it was 2003 then. So I'd been in the squadron for two years. Of course, uh, we're hearing echoes of Iraq, you know, kind of kind of echoing around. So uh, I'm coming back from Greece and we usually shuttle the airplanes to and from the Middle East to kind of get people to and from. And um, I had talked to my wife while I was in Greece and I said, hey, honey, guess what? She goes, what? And I said, hey, we got that job in Japan. And I'll, I'll tell you the, the backstory behind that because it's hilarious. And I said, hey, here's the good news. I said, hey, we got that job. And, and she goes, well, what's the bad news? And I said, we got to get married like Saturday. Right. Because we're going. <laughs> yeah. Because we're going and the next war is starting. And uh-huh. I don't know if we don't get this, this uh, you know, our, we don't get our paperwork done. This is, I'm not going to be able to take you to Japan. So, so another strange story. Right. Um, so how did the Japan thing happen? So I was, I guess I could tell you. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. We need to know, oh, yeah. what the, we know, we need to know what the wedding ended up looking like. It's on the fly. So, so it was February 03 in Jackson right. Hole underneath the antler arches. So it was chilly. Right. It was just really, moved. really just cold, moved. man. We moved everything up a little bit. Before you get into the Japan thing, because yeah. I'm very interested in this. You mentioned sort of that initial wave of night vision yep. goggles, right? And training. Go back to episode two here of Pick Up the Six podcast. You can hear Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson talking about Air Force Reserve helicopter pilot flying that payfalk to rescue Marcus Luttrell, relying on those night vision goggles. That's oh, 2005, yeah. right? So you're part of that initial yep. wave that brings that on board. And, and Jeff talked about how they constantly trained with those night vision goggles. And when he got in those moments, how it made such a huge difference in being able to ultimately rescue that American when they needed to go get him. Oh, yeah. And I mean, another part of NVGs, I mean, we flew with them, but it was kind of, mm, I, I'd say, you know, they were underutilized because yeah. I, frankly, the technology was great. Yeah. Yep. 
they were they were underutilized. But boy, I'll tell you what, if you think the government is risk adverse, not when they don't need to be, because, <laughs> uh, you know, when they said basically, hey, you're going into Bagram and this is when Bagram was, you know, fresh base. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still remember because, you know, part of the, the wartime kind of routine is you bomb the runway to make sure they can't take off. So then a C-130 can land between the, the two craters. And that's exactly what we did. And they delineated the runway uh, threshold by turning on lights of an automobile at the beginning of the runway and the end of the <laughs> runway. So you could see, oh, 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 it was like I said, dude, there's yeah. crazy yeah. stories out there. What do you, I so, mean, at minimum, what do you need to land a C-130? You, you don't need much, right? You, you don't need much, but I mean, it was tricky up there because, I mean, these are older C-130s. So these are H models, a lot of E models. This was before the J, which is like the, the really souped up model. But so the pressure altitude, which means like the elevation up there was like close to 7,000 feet. So it's like, you know, with your car, it doesn't perform really well. So neither does the airplane. So if you pull the power off with the throttle, I mean, you're going to drop like a rock. Mm-hmm. And then you don't have depth perception with the NVGs. So. I mean, it became a really crew coordination item. Yeah, you know, so it was uh, it was wild. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm but, sure. But like, like I remember sitting on the ramp, and you know, you can like, there's no way the enemy could hear it because I mean, they could hear an airplane, but have no clue where it is in the sky. I knew airplanes were coming in because you could hear them on the radio, and then all of a sudden you hear like the them going into reverse, and I'm like, I, I never saw the aircraft, and I got NVGs. You know, it was just, it was, it was amazing time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, man. Uh, probably some hairy situations <laughs> you guys found yourselves in. The, the hairy one was a rack. I mean, that, that was, there were some nuts times there. So, so what I, the funniest story I was going to tell you is, uh, so the Japan thing happened. I was, so we were based out of Pakistan at the time. And uh, I came back from a flight. It was 3 a.m. And I'll never forget Scott was was on the phone and, and he's just yelling cursing up a storm into the phone i don't want to do that i don't want to do that and and hangs up the phone i'm like dude what's wrong with you man i mean what are you yelling at the phone for he goes man the boss wants me to take this this exchange job to japan and i'm like hell i'll take that exchange job dead serious right yeah. I, mean, I was just like because i mean anybody you know that thought through what was going on goes hey we're going to be here for a long time you know i mean and I was like, eh, this is my third war or almost my third war at that time in five years. I need to find something else to do. So that is when my career completely took a shift. So, uh, you know, I kind of talked to my boss and then I said, hey, tell me about that exchange job. I did not know at that time because I was still young and it was all wartime flying that there were. I think we have like 70 plus exchange uh, positions in the Air Force. And the it's a really strategic, cool role because. You know, as a company grade or field grade officer, they would plant you into a, another country's military with mm-hmm. the idea that as you both get promoted together, I mean, there's instant credibility and trust across the table so that when like a crisis does come up, they go, hey, I know Jason, I trust him. I mean, it's just instant kind of affinity. So it's really cool. Um I, I was probably not a great candidate, uh, frankly, because my my uh, my language scores. If you've ever taken this language test, I mean, it's just absolutely brutal. Um, I, it's kind of funny, but um, you listen to a series of uh, audible sounds, and then you you try to you, you actually have to learn 
how this fake language works within the test period and then actually use those words to actually, um, I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, that is. That's incredible. So, um, yeah. oh, oh, it was. So it, it's 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 kind of interesting um, that uh, it's funny, but my wife scored much better on that test than I did. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's it, it's just one of those stories. So ended up um, they did select me after I did some hardcore lobbying on my behalf. And then in 2003, uh, we did do that second wedding. Um, mm-hmm. That was more for the family in July. And then we were off to Japan in September. How long were you guys there? How long, how long were you uh, in Japan? I mean, what was that, what was that time frame like? Uh, so we, 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 oh boy. So that's another good story. Um, before I went to the Japan assignment, I talked to my boss, you know, my squadron commander. And I said, Hey, I'm kind of interested in this Japan thing. How competitive am I for school? And, and what that meant is, you know, if you go to school, if you're like one of the top candidates, you go to school and that kind of guarantees you getting promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. Right. So I talked to him and he goes, Jace, you know, Hey, you're one of my top 10% guys, but you're not one of my school guys. And I was like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to Japan. Then I'm going to have, I'm going to have you a cool career. Right. So, um, it's kind of funny. We got there in September, uh, went right into language school. So typically they have defense language Institute in Monterey. Mm -hmm. This, this one, they, they deliberately wanted you very immersed in the culture right away. So we went to downtown Tokyo in a place called Kichijoji. And, uh, we were there with a bunch of Chinese, South Koreans, Thai, and, and us in a very small classroom. Um, but, uh, so, so when I told my boss, Hey, he goes, Hey, you're not one of my top guys. Sure enough, as things always work out this way, he sent me an email. He goes, I don't know how you did this, but you got on the schools list. So right. now I'm in Japan, I'm right. on the schools list. And, and so it's just, it, it's chaos. So now the reason why, so we go through the, about 15 months of language school and, uh, no joke. And I, I wrote about this in one of my articles by miles of intensity. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life bar none. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing even close. And I call it, you you figure out how humans learn. Um, And I turned into an infant again, pretty quick because uh, they they never spoke a word of English, not one word ever, even if you were struggling, I mean, like really struggling. So um, you, you can't think, you know, you can't speak to them. You can't understand what they're saying. So you turn back into a baby and you start crying and go, <laughs> this sucks. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and how, I, uh, how, Jason, how old were you at this? Yeah, at this I was 30. Right. So you're 30 years old and you've got to just yeah. totally rewire everything up there. Everything. To not, to, by the way, we're not tasking you with learning Spanish, Greek, <laughs> even German, like anything that you could remotely wrap your brain around. It's yep. the total opposite of anything going to speak an Asian language, right? It's the total in, in every way, right. every, you can't even write way. it. No, you, you can't even, you can like, like you said with Spanish, you can kind of look at it and go, yeah, I kind of, you can read it. You can at least right. verbalize it. Yes. Right. Yes. So it, that's what I was saying. It was real interesting to figure out how humans learn because I mean, the way I think about it now, cause I'm a, a brain guy, you know, the, the words would go in and just like I always visualize the back of my head as like a, a clean uh, wall or mm-hmm. white space or whatever. The words would hit it and fall off and hit it and fall off. And hit it. I mean, just it was that constantly. And then one day a word stuck 
right? And you had it. And then another one. And then words kept falling off like crazy, but you, you would just build this database. Yeah. And, and that's how, I mean, humans learn. It's very simple. Repetition, 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 and that's it. So after that 15 months, I was uh, definitely nowhere near functional, but, but I was okay. Now, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself because I was going to be in an airplane teaching people how to fly in Japanese internally speaking outside the aircraft externally in English, broken English, because it's, you know, Japanese controllers. Mm -hmm. So I put a lot, I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself. And I probably, I, I mean, there were several times I was like, I do not want to do this. Anymore. Right. I right. have Could never, quit? Yeah. ever been that uncomfortable ever in my life or ever since ever. Yeah. Something, something in there about uh, living in that uncomfort though, that likely, get you to to thrive. We, we don't need to go through every step of what those years look like. Cause if I'm doing the math, right, it's sort of Oh, three timeframe. You don't retire to 2014. So that's a long yep. runway of all that. Um, and, and just working through that, uh, we're going to get to how this entrepreneurial spirit in you is, is stoked along the way and how that ultimately leads to writing a book and, and post-military career. And now your efforts with pre-veteran before we do that though, what was your favorite thing about time in Japan? Oh man. Um, okay. So, so my, my favorite time was obviously that's where we started the family. So we had both kids while in Japan and we ended up staying. So I ended up staying in that squadron for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. So me and 500 Japanese people in a squadron for, you know, five years, four to five years. Are you the only that's American just, in the mix? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. Right. So, I mean, that, that is emergent. So I miss those relationships uh, with Japanese buddies. Now, again, we could do six shows just on the cultural differences, but I, I'll, spare, I'll spare you. There's so many fun stories in there. Um, but, you know, so the big takeaway, uh, just, just the cultural aspects and how different it was. It took me a good, cause you know, as a, as an American, you're like, Hey, I want to blend into the culture. So we, we tried to be the square peg in the round hole for two years, actually. And then one day I was like, you know, why am I doing this? And then I figured out I can kind of dip my foot in their culture when I wanted and take it out. And man, I was so much happier after that. Mm -hmm. It was because, you know, they're so different. They, they, they understand that you're going to cycle out. So they sometimes won't invest a lot of time in you. And I totally get that. So that was the big takeaway is, you know, Hey, wonderful culture. Um, dip my toe in when I want, dip it out when I want. It was complete freedom. It was wonderful. It's an incredible journey, man. Um, and just to think about where, you know, your military career life in the air force can take you. And, and it l ends up looking very different than what you probably anticipated when you're going through uh, those early days, right? When you're getting commissioned in, when you're calling in on the one thirty, and then ultimately to look at it years and years later and be like, wow, look at this path that yeah. it, that it takes it's it's uh it's wild man but it's very cool and I, and I know yeah. you probably reflected on it quite a bit right as to what what it provided for you and your family yeah and I think one of the bigger things I I, I knew going into my career is like I want to have an adventure and maybe that kind of drove everything you know one of the kind of better stories to, to progress this a little, because like I said, we could get stuck in all kinds of fun little stories. Um, I'm having a great time. So we, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, you know, because uh, at, at the end of, 
you know, being in Japan for geez, almost seven years. Right. Cause yeah. after yeah. I finished the squadron there, I did do my air command and staff, my professional school in Tokyo. So we just kind of extended on another two years almost to do that. So we did seven. To, what, what does one do when the only person who knew I existed? I mean, it was amazing. I still got a paycheck because I was so far off the normal career path and on an island, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. no one knew who I was. I was not going to get promoted. You know, I knew I was going to make a lieutenant colonel because of the school alone. Um, so I, I literally started cold calling people. I'm not joking. Uh, there have been a couple people, a couple people in similar jobs in Japan at completely different locations. So you know, we had a little network, of course. So I cold called um, PACAF, which is Pacific Air Forces in Hawaii, um, and then I cold called the Pentagon. Um, ran across this guy, just found the right guy named Rod, right? And I go, hey, you know, Mr. Shaw, uh, my name's Jason Anderson. You know, doing this. He goes, send me your resume. You know, I was like, okay. So next thing you know, uh, 24 hours later, I've got orders to the Pentagon and I'm going to be the Japan country director for SAFIA, which is Secretary right. Air Force right. International Affairs, who does all the foreign military sales. So I end up staying in the Pentagon the next six years, uh, selling like $15 billion worth of equipment to Japan. Right. So <laughs> see, but this is where that kind of self-starter entrepreneurial mindset starts to kick in. You wrote, despite being educated and a war-tested leader, it really bothered me that I couldn't intellectually think through what steps needed to be taken to be successful. It was like there was a veil in my mind preventing me from seeing a clear path or thinking effectively. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, that really cuts to the heart of everything. So in the Pentagon, I mean, it's not normal to do a six-year career at the Pentagon. So I really enjoyed that job. And if you kind of look back to the timeline, that was the Lehman Brothers crisis, mm-hmm. big recession. So most of the headquarters Air Force was impacted by budgets and, and things like that. Um, the way foreign military sales works is that uh, the country is paying an administrative fee. So it didn't impact my job at all. Um, I was traveling to and from Japan, Korea, Mongolia six, seven times a year just, just to go meet up and do security cooperation with that. So, so that was that six-year period. That that quote you just brought up um, is very specifically talking about the transition. And we kind of talked about before the show, but I retired. Uh, my planned retirement was in 2014. And we all know this, um, that we're wearing the uniform. You will get to a point because transition is a psychological, physiological event that happens at some point, you're going to have to address these feelings that well up in you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're because what happens is just like the quote says, uh, despite being educated, just like everyone is in the military, despite being battle tested, which they all are, they are going to be unable to create a clear picture for how to get where they are now to out of the military. It, and and we, we'll get into the specifics as we kind of go down the road a little bit. But but that's what that meant is. Um, uh, very clearly remember it was 2012. So two years before the planned retirement, I'm driving back from I-95. I'm the uniform wearing person in the family. I've been dragging my wife around now for over 10 years throughout Asia. And I do not want to tell her, I do not how to, I don't know how to do this. I mean, mm. she's never heard me say that, Yeah. you know, we've been through Japanese school. I mean, we've been through some very challenging periods and I'm like, I can't think through this dear. 
I don't know how we're going to do this. Right. And of course I have now two kids and we've got a family and I'm, I'm sitting here going, I cannot see, I, I don't know how I'm going to get paid. Right. I, I mean, these are things that people are thinking that they're not articulating to their spouse. Right. <laughs> so um, what I do at that time, and this is where the entrepreneurship comes in. Uh, uh, it was frankly an irrational thought when I, when I told you um, as a, most people wearing uniform will go to usajobs.gov, which is the federal website, you know, for job registry kind of things. So you kind of put in a location, see what it is. And I kind of jokingly, but not jokingly told you the job available in Jackson, Wyoming was a lumberjack for the, the national forest. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to work out. Mm-hmm. So I turned to my wife on I-95 as we're coming back from King's Dominion. And I said, Hey, we're going to start a small business, right? And I'm saying it with a smile going, yeah, I don't know if I believe that myself. Um, but, uh, I did, I said, Hey, we're going to start a small business. And naturally she goes, what in the, what are you talking about? Right. Cause she's rational and I'm sitting here going, so saying something completely irrational. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but there was something smart in that comment I made because she goes, well, why would you do that? And I said, well, we, we need, we need to create kind of a transitional bridge to get us from here to Wyoming because we want to go to Wyoming to be around family, raise kids, all those things. And uh, she goes, but you don't know how to do that. I said, but I'll figure it out. And of course that's a total military trait. I'll figure it out. But I had two years to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I go digging in to entrepreneurship and this is way before Syracuse university, way before bunker labs, way before there was no resources back then. So I had to go to the SBA up there in Virginia. I, I just kind of, I dove in aggressively and what that really did is that became the, uh, the, the beginning of pre-veteran with, without naming it that because I had to get my mind out of the public sector into the private sector. And it was transformational for sure. And over those two years, we did develop a small digital advertising business that was going to cater to locals here in Jackson Hole. It's a cool idea. It did start making money, um, but but now kind of go into the, the transitional period. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved back to Jackson Hole uh, and everything's going fine. You know, um, we're making a little bit of money. It's growing. But then I had someone from a big uh, defense aerospace company at the time who always came to me at the Pentagon to talk about Japan, kind of drop me a note and go, hey, you know, we just opened up a job role and it's remote. It's full remote. And and back in that day, 2014, that was not common yeah, at all. It's not like it is today. That's for sure. So I was like, whoo, I might want to look at that. So um, I did apply for it. I did get the job. And next thing you know, we discontinue that small business and I start being an employee. But but I was changed, right? I mean, I had gone through this 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 uh, self-marketing. I understood what businesses wanted. I definitely was not where I'm at now, but I was on that path, which is hugely critical. And um, I get into this, it was called Rockwell Collins at the time. It's been since been mutated by a couple different merger acquisitions, but uh, it was a wonderful Cedar Rapids, Iowa based company, big company, 5 billion annual revenue, mm-hmm. uh, top, you know, top, top tier defense uh, aerospace company. Um, and, you know, I get into that role and it's a business development role. And then I start kind of noticing, I'm like, Hey, you know, with my international background, I was like, I, I think I got some ideas for how you guys can increase international growth. And next thing you know, they're like, well, let's hear it. 
You know, mm-hmm. I did not know that this is exactly the message they wanted to hear. So I put together a pitch deck um, and then it goes up through every layer up to senior well, executive uh, vice president. And, you know, a month later, after I'd gone through all those layers, uh, I'm like, OK, I guess that's it. I haven't heard anything. Right. You know, I'm like, hey, I did my thing. Let's go yeah. back to my job. Two weeks after that, um, one of the VP GMs uh, calls me just out of the blue and he goes, hey, you're going to see me on your calendar. Don't be alarmed. And of course, I'm like, <laughs> you know. I'm here for the the government and I'm here to help you. (laughs) Right. You kind of get that kind of get that impression. So I'm like, Oh shit, what did I do? So he, he, uh, we talk and he goes, Hey, you know, I saw your presentation. It's very impressive. We're really looking for this. And by the way, I want to, you know, would you like, would you be open to consider a, a role that we're opening up in North Asia? And I was like, well, what's the role? And he said, it's a managing director. So it's an executive level, uh, big job where you're running the business for Japan, Korea, Taiwan for the company. So, I mean, it's a huge responsibility. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, uh, we go through the process. I'm sure I was not at the top of the list, I'm sure. But there's also not a lot of people in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that want to uproot their family, go to a new job role that they just opened because they view that as risk. And of course, I'm ignorant enough to know, <laughs> probably a little ignorant at that time. I was like, hey, Sounds like a great opportunity. So take the job. Next thing you know, off we go. Uh, we're expatriated to Tokyo again um, as a family. And now I'm the head of business for Japan, Korea, Taiwan for this big company. And from there, the learning curve was absolutely vertical. I mean, mm. on the business side, uh, you know, I got to learn all the business units, all the leaders sat in on all the leadership meetings, went through the hiring, firing, talent management, you know, supply, I mean, every part of the business I touch, which is where I gained the expertise, you know. So um, it, it was a phenomenal growth uh, period for me in the private sector world for business. So it was fascinating. It's incredible, man, the journey. I mean, I, I, in those moments, how often did you think back the time where your buddy was going to take this exchange job, decided he didn't want it? And you're like, let me slide in here real quick and, and look what happens yeah. man, all these years later. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I'm, I'm thinking about that more. Um, military people are definitely go, 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 go. Mm-hmm. And um, that has served me well, but I'm really trying to slow things down. I'm not good at that, by the way, you know, because next thing you know, I get the next the 10 sense. years are going to be a, right. <laughs> they're going to be a blur, but I mean, yeah. it, it's hard to convince me because it's been so successful that that's, that's something I ought to, you know, dump. Right. Because, but, but there, there is a fine area that I'm trying to kind of um, change that. So I got to tell you about, um, so here, here's where pre-veteran starts kind of coming into focus. So I get to Asia and I've always been fascinated with the the military transition space. I just have, it's just, it's fascinated me. It's uh, you know, I put a lot of thought into it. So when I'm in Asia, I'm like, I got to figure this thing out because I was successful for some reason. I'm sure I did some things right. Um, but what is going on in, mm-hmm. in the transition space? So I start studying, I start researching in my free time. And I, I didn't have a lot of free time, but you know, I'd take some nights and stuff like that. And I really start digging in and I, I looking back now, I call that the what, mm-hmm. and I was looking for what the hell is going on. And because it feels like, Intuitively, it felt like uh, it was just a hodgepodge of, of data that was out there. Nobody had 
consolidated it and I needed to consolidate it because nobody else did. So I did. And um, it took me two years to kind of go through the research. And I found out uh, it, the data became pretty clear to me that there's a two year period following military transition where every, well, not every, I can't say that um, in the aggregate military people do not perform well mm -hmm. across four measures. And the four measures are uh, employment, higher education, wellness, and entrepreneurship. Just do not perform well, despite a crap load of support on all of those fronts, right? Mm -hmm. So after those two years, I was like, okay, I think I have a good kind of handle on the problem. But I've always been one of those guys that I'm like, hey, I'm not going to say, hey, here's the problem and not have a solution. So um, from 2018 to 2020, I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out why. So uh, that took me on a kind of a really interesting personal journey of, um, you know, what, what academic discipline do you pick? Do you pick sociology, anthropology, psychology, behavioral psychology? So I went through all these different things. And then I finally landed on cognitive neuroscience. And um, cognitive neuroscience struck me both kind of intuitively and then later when I kind of researched it as being kind of the answer because there's nothing more profoundly uh, individual and personal than how your brain processes the information in the external environment, because it's a very clear line. You know, what you think leads to the behaviors that you do, the behaviors you do lead to actions, actions lead to outcomes. So that is why I picked cognitive neuroscience. So in that 20, late 17, 18 and on, I actually hired a cognitive neuroscientist for a year, you know, put her on the payroll because I was making good money at the mm -hmm. time. And I said, you got to teach me how the brain works. Right. So she did. She was a uh, PhD from George Mason and, you know, phenomenal, just great resource. I really appreciate um, everything she taught me. So then I ended up creating uh, a cognitive neuroscience based model that is proprietary to pre-veteran. And what that ended up doing is um, I was able to very clearly articulate why people are struggling in that two-year period. And it kind of all comes down to, right, uh, for, for the listeners who are wearing the uniform, I mean, they're all familiar with this program called the Transition Assistance mm -hmm. Program, which is a, a you know kind of an interagency effort on Department of Defense, the VA, Department of Labor, Education, all these different things. And what they're trying to do, frankly, is they have a fiduciary duty of getting people, everyone in the military, out of the military. But of course, since it's for everyone, because it's legally for everyone, it's really hard to find yourself what you need in that program for you individually yeah. Yeah. to get out of it to be successful. Right. Is it, so is a, big, I mean, there's a lot more of just, you know, hey, what do you like to do? What do you think you might want to do in the future? I mean, you're talking about brain wiring with the stuff you're looking at. <laughs> It's fascinating. It, it, it is. It's fascinating. And that's frankly what makes us different is I'm able to get into their head, our head, right? I mm -hmm. mean, I was in that same boat. I can very, very clearly articulate to them uh, what is going on in their head from a messaging standpoint. And, and that becomes so effective because once you're able to understand that those messages that you're getting in your head are not productive, then you can actually navigate around them and then find more productive ways to actually uh, transition from the military. How important is it for these guys and gals? And one of the things I love about the day and age that we're living in 
is you're able to leverage technology and, and social media and even the ability to learn during your active duty career to start putting pieces in place for what it looks like in the future. I and mean, I think about guys and there's there's hundreds of brands you could list, but I even think about the guys like at Black Rifle Coffee, right? Th- this love for this thing that they know they're going to ultimately want to do later. They're able to stoke it and learn it and develop it as they're doing. I mean, your book is called Active Duty Entrepreneur, right? Active duty is the key part. Of it. It's the very beginning of that, but, but got to be thinking about that stuff before sign off date happens. Right. Oh, totally. Totally. But, but you'd be surprised. Right. So I was telling you about the transition assistance program. It's been here since 1991. I, I labeled this phenomenon. We're still in as military transition 1.0. Mm. And this, this 1.0 is a big blocky program um, that is non-individual. It's very general in nature. So because it's not an individual model, what human beings do is they try to solve the problem themselves. And of course, now the military member is, is trying to create their own individual model. They're like, okay, you know, in, intuitively they know this. They're like, hey, the program's not going to meet my needs. So what I'm going to do is what they do, and this is the downside of social media, is there's a lot of people in social media who are stuck in this 1.0 I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's actual veteran advocates out there that say, hey, suck it up. It's going to be a struggle. Hey, take your first job, even if it's a bad one. And I'm just going, no, 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 don't, don't do that. We, we don't need to do this 1.0 solution. We can make it highly customizable, highly individual, but we just have to think differently about it. So when you bring up, um, uh, you know, doing it earlier, that is a, that is a, that is a pre pre veteran. I mean, pre veteran mm-hmm. before you're a veteran, it's foundational to our program, but people don't think that way. And, and the simple reason is uh, like, for instance, you know, you know, let's say, Brian, you're given advice and you go, hey, you got to start earlier. Well, the next question is how much earlier? Mm-hmm. And then the next question is, what am I supposed to do? Right. So so because the program is geared toward the very last part of your career. Right. And, and I call this career descent and career descent is defined as, you know, if you're an enlisted person, your contract is you're not going to extend your contract. Or if you're an officer, you just said, hey, I want to retire. I want to separate. You're now on the downslope, right? And, and going back to my C-130 days when you're flying, as you start descending, it gets really busy. So the way we kind of characterize mm-hmm. this is we say your workload actually three triples. So you're doing your normal day job, which includes you know your normal duties. You might be doing some training. You're still doing your family obligations. Well, the 2X on top of that, is now, you know, you need to disentangle yourself from the military. So you're attending medical debriefs, you're Mm -hmm. uh, reading out from your security clearance, dental appointments, getting your VA records together. So, I mean, that's very time consuming. And then on top of that, you know, you're supposed to figure out who you are, what you want to do, informational interviews now, right? So you could see priority wise, you could see how they prioritize it. They prioritize getting a job and everything last, Mm -hmm. which is why one of the reasons that two-year gap is so bad. So what we're trying to do is exactly what you said. Pre-veteran, we want to get you one to three years before you get out, but we have very specific programming. Um, We know the data shows us that 90 plus percent become employees and 70% of those 90% become private sector employees. So the common sense thing is, hey, let's let's teach them about the private sector. So we have a what we call the employment prep course, and it's five-week course. It is asynchronous, which means we've got a learning management system. Mm-hmm. 
each week of the five weeks, there's 20 to 40 minutes of knowledge transfer. Um, and then once per week, one hour, we do a live Zoom. And then, of course, there's assignments and homework in there. So we use our cognitive-based neuroscience model to show them those obstacles that they have in their head. And here's a couple examples. Um, um, what happens is uh, the memory in their head is what makes the biggest impact because, like, let's say, you know, Brian, you, you mentioned that you went through uh, you know, uh, you know, TV production and things like that for school. You obviously have some long term memory you've developed for that. So the I way lost, you're thinking lost cycle, a little bit of it during those college <laughs> years as well. But yeah, I'm tracking <laughs> See, as it should be. Right. You got to have that stuff. So, so what your brain will do is um, like when they're thinking of transition, and, and this is where a visual is, is nice, but we're going to keep it audio today. Mm -hmm. um, when they're thinking of transition, they're going to pull that information into their head. Hey, I got to get ready for transition. And then that, that thought is going to look for associated long-term memory, right? Um, in their head. And then that's going to complete the cognitive cycle. So what happens when they have no experience transitioning from the military? They've never done it before. So there's nothing to latch onto in their minds. However, their minds still try to, their, their mind in its survival, because that's what it's there for, for their survival, it'll give them a bunch of good ideas. Mm -hmm. And these good ideas range from, should I do something completely different? Should I get another degree? Should I get my Six Sigma? Should I get my PMP? All these are everywhere, right? That people tell them they ought to do these things. But if you kind of take a step back and look, it's just a bunch of energy going in shotgun different directions. So they're spinning their wheels and they're getting no closer to actually where they want to go, mm -hmm. right? So it, this is this military transition 1.0 I was telling you about. It's chaotic in their minds. And then remember, they're on the downslope of their career. So as they get closer to that date, the stress just goes through the roof, right? And that's why they pick any job because right. they're like, Jesus, right. I just need to get food on the table, right? right. So the, the, these are leading to very bad outcomes or much less than optimal outcomes. And then on the other side of it, um, in their mind, right, as they say, hey, I got to get ready for transition, they have a plethora of military-related memories that what they do is they try to carry those over to the private sector, right? And we call that the military mindset heuristic because the mind, a part of its attribute is uh, it tries to be efficient. So when it thinks of something, um, what it'll do is it'll take the military related experience and try to pull it to the private sector. An example is, you know, if you can imagine, you know, being in the military, hey, Jason, I know you're a pilot, but I need you to do this today. And mm -hmm. then I need you to do that. And I need you to do that. It has nothing to do with your skill. It has nothing to do with your like, dislike. It's where they need you. So if you can imagine how many times you do that cognitive cycle throughout a 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 year career, you think that way now. So your expectation is when you go to the private sector that they want a generalist, someone who can fit anywhere in the company. Right. And the private sector is like, I don't want a fucking generalist. That's right. I want, I want a specific individual with a specific skill set to fit a specific role, period. Yep. I have headcount consideration. So, so you can see this, this misalignment is what creates this two-year gap. So this is what we're trying to fix is it's very, to us, I mean, it, it's gonna take time to get the word out, but it is getting out because uh, uh, we launched in March. Um, we have already run our second cohort through. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, the other thing, it's really important to kind of for, for your uh, listeners, 
uh, we are definitely charged for our courses. Now, that is antithetical to everything in the space, right? But let me let me make an appeal to those sure. people right now. I was going to say, how do they pay for this, right? They got to pay for this. Yeah, somewhere. so they pay for it out of their pocket and we will never make it free. Let me just be very blunt yeah, about be that. Clear let about me it, tell yeah. you, let me tell you why, right? First, um, like when we talk about training and we talk about how one thinks, if you approach your transferring or your, your uh, transition out of the military, like you do, like let's say sexual assault training or some other kind of training in the military, sure. Sure. you're going to turn off your brain. It's not transformational. I mean, you're going to, you're, you're going to go through the motions just like you do in every other training exercise. And, and we stand on two principles. One is self-transformation. You must change. What's funny about that is if you look at the research and it pisses me off, but they tell, they tell military people they don't need to change. They tell the world that they need to accept whatever the military person is. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense, right? So uh, the other one is you need to uh, um, align to the private sector, right? That misalignment, mm-hmm. that gap is what's causing a majority of the problems as well. So our, our programs stand on those two things. And the only way I'm going to get you to buy into your own transformation is to literally have you pay for it Absolutely. and then expect us to train you to a level. So we, we, we become interactive with one another. It puts and, the uh, expectations up for everybody, right? Everybody absolutely. That it puts the expectations up and, and it's look, if you want to become uh, the best Brazilian jujitsu fighter, you are going to have to pay for that level of training and you're going to have to be willing to put yep. the work in. Right. And so both of those Amen. things go hand in hand. Amen. And, and one more really critical distinction, right? The private sector, you pay for everything. You don't mm-hmm. get shit for free. I, I mean, so True. so why would we why would we continue feeding this right. this stupid unaligned um, you know kind of notion that it, it's kind of like this? Why don't you ask them? Uh, you know, hey, go to Starbucks and ask for your free coffee. Starbucks, you know, it, it it's just not how the world works. Why do we keep feeding this this awful narrative that mm-hmm. the expectations in their mind is that they should be getting everything for it free? It also likely that, helps them add value to who they are. So in the future, now you're going to uh, realign, you're going to, to continue to sharpen yourself. And it's also going to show you what your value is too. So when you step into X job interview, or when you launch X business on your own, now you may might have a greater sense as to what your value is to then go recoup that those resources as well. hundred percent, right? hundred percent. And I remember thinking these things that I'm being critical of people of right now. I remember thinking those, but it's a brain thing, right? I mean, yeah. what we try to do with our modeling to show uh, their brain is completely functional, but it, but it's the way it's been, um, you know, the environment that it's mm-hmm. been in mm-hmm. where it creates these, these things. So, so it was really important for us to get these words out there that really accurately describe what they're thinking and what we're finding out. I mean, granted, it's only been two cohorts, but I mean, it really changes how they think. And then once we're able to remove or mitigate those obstacles that, you know, create less productivity, we can fill that in with really good information. And then they, they move out yep. and they're going to be successful. I mean, yep. we, so we want to kind of change the whole space. I mean, it's, it's, Fascinating. it's very Incredible. ambitious. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but finding at. some, finding some real strength of purpose here in this, in this next chapter of your life, yep. you got to tell us uh, our listeners where they can find more information about it, where they can get dialed up to what you guys are doing. Oh, you bet. You bet. So um, obviously we have the pre-veteran website and I mean, you can navigate to preveteran.com. 
Uh, most of our messaging there, it talks about, again, the two pillars, which are, you know, you got to self-transform, you have to change. And then the other part is the alignment to the private sector. Again, right now, we're kind of catering to the employment folks because we know that numbers say that most are going to become employees. We obviously want to get as many people um, doing what they want to do and making as much money as they can to, you know, as kind of validation of their value they can provide an organization. It's all done um, uh, on the uh, preparation side of the house. So the idea, just like you were articulating just a little time ago, we want to get you toward the end of your career, right? When you, but, but not on your career descent. So we know that you're busy and what we're trying to do is interweave our training while you're in your busy life before mm -hmm. you get on descent, because that's just how things work, right? So our quick five week course can get you employment prep. Um, it is 500 bucks for five weeks. And then after you finish that, not, not unreasonable, our, not unreasonable oh, at all, not at all, not not at all. all yeah. right? And um, once you do that, then you go into our private LinkedIn, uh, private alumni community where you mm -hmm. can continue your, your development. And what we love about that is, you know, that's going to have more. It's not going to be your average transitioning person. These are people who have bought into the program, literally and figuratively, and want to do the self-transformation and continue that alignment with the private sector in that group. So it's going to become a very powerful kind of group. So that's our first course. Um, we also have another course that's on there. We call it um, Get the Job You Want with the Highest Possible Salary and Benefits. I mean, original pretty, name, right? Pretty straightforward, yeah. <laughs> it's that pretty straightforward, but, yeah. but but you can see we, we bifurcate that. We pull those two apart because what we're finding out is the people that are entering our first course now have a year to three years to go. So, right, we can develop them quite a bit. And then when they get within 100 days, we'd like to then put them in the salary course because you know, you can never make a guarantee, but what we've seen from what we've done so far is we can get you an average of like five to 10 grand extra, whether it's salary or bonus. So, I mean, it's, it pays itself back like a million times over and it's just really good. So the pre-veteran website is where you go. The courses page is, is very easy to navigate to. The other thing I'd kind of encourage uh, people to look at is if you go to the website and you go to a, the about uh, mm -hmm. button there, and then there's a pull down to news and press, what we do is we publish weekly new content. And it's very different than what you kind of see out there with the normal transition space. So again, it focuses on the alignment of the private sector, the self-transformation and why we're different. But I think that's where they really glean how we're very different than the rest of the market. And we're really focused on your individual needs and helping you get where you want to go. I love it, man. Uh, bringing um, just an incredible depth of of knowledge and and experience, but but shaking things up a little bit. And guys got a little bit of a maybe disruptor in them, uh, which is something I'm a, a huge fan of. Jason, I've I've been enjoying this conversation, man. I got to let you run here, and I know you've got incredible work to continue doing. Uh, wish you guys nothing but success in the future as as you continue to build this thing. Uh, guys, go check them out. Pre-veteran. Uh, find the website if this sounds intriguing to you, or if you've got a family member, loved one, right in the military, and 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 even if even if the end of the road isn't right down the corner, you know, for them, it might be worth taking a look at what that might look like for them to uh, to optimize, you know, their chance of success as they go here. Jason, been thrilled to get to meet you, man. Get to know you, and uh, not only talk to your personal story, but about this this incredible journey you're on now. Hey, really appreciate it, Brian, and, and I look forward to coming back and giving you an update. 
you know, in the Absolutely. next uh, months, year. We got we got a few more it. things we need to unpack from some of oh. those other stories too. Oh, there, said multiple times there's... we could do three, four, five episodes. I'm like, yeah, we should probably do that. <laughs> Sounds great. Appreciate the opportunity. It was really good catching up with you um, and look forward to the next chat. Until next time then, my friend. Until next time. That's right. Awesome. He's Jason Anderson of Pre-Veteran. I'm Brian Jodas, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast. <laughs>